Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers. It's where the pioneers of the business world join the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. I'm very pleased to say that my guest today is Gary Eldon OBE, founder of Huxley, a recruitment agency specialising in financial services and engineering. And he's also chairperson at the digital recruitment platform RecBid and the consultancy Amoria Bond. Gary's Jamaican father, only the second black cab driver in London, instilled in his children a ferocious work ethic. As Gary says, Dad wanted my sister, my brother and I to be cab drivers because he liked the idea of us being independent and being our own boss. But back then I wanted to work for a bank in an office. You're in a suit, your hands are clean, you earn lots of money. Despite being in all the top classes at school, Gary says it was ethnically divided and he felt no encouragement from teachers. He was nevertheless ambitious. His role models, such as Muhammad Ali, were people who went against the flow. His career in recruitment started when he joined S3 as one of its first employees. Within five years, the founders backed Gary to launch his own brand, Huxley, a banking and finance recruitment agency, which he grew internationally to become the most profitable S3 brand, before going on to become deputy, then CEO of S3. Gary's now the chairperson at RecBid and Amoria Bond, and he's the trustee of the Alito Foundation a non-profit organisation supporting people from disadvantaged backgrounds to be the leaders of tomorrow. Most importantly, above everything else, he's an Arsenal fan. Hello, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. You were brought up uh, on a council estate in Camberwell, Gary, and you've gone on to become one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the recruitment world. When you were growing up there, and we heard earlier about your dad instilling a work ethic, a strong work ethic, could you have imagined that you would have achieved all the things you have achieved so far? I don't want to sound arrogant, but yes, my philosophy was always, when you look at successful people, you think, well, why are they successful? Are they from a privileged background? Did they work hard? Are they smart? And I always felt, I don't know, for some reason, and I'm not, I'm not religious, but I always felt that I was going to achieve something. Um, I was always ambitious. I always wanted more and I was never satisfied. So, um, I didn't picture, you know, working in the corporate world and being a CEO of a listed company, but I always felt whatever I put my mind to, I will be successful just through hard work and determination. And those first few things that you did in life when you probably weren't where you wanted to be, at what point did you, was there an epiphany when you said, you know what, I'm going to be my own boss, I'm going to do my own thing, or was that always the intention regardless? So when I was younger, we were always looking at ways of making money. When we went to a youth club, rather than go to the youth club and say, right, let's enjoy ourselves, we said, right, how can we raise money for the youth club by creating events? So we'd run local discos and stuff like that. And as we got older, we was, right, look, how can we make money by creating house parties? So we're always looking at opportunities to make money. I always felt that um, I wanted to be successful, but I also realised that I needed to gain experience. So when I was young... I wanted to get into the banking world or the finance world because you'd read or watch programs about people being successful in that area. So I liked the idea of wearing a suit, looking the part and earning lots of money. So when I was 16 and left school, my first 
job wasn't what I dreamed of. You know, I wanted to work in insurance or banking, and I actually got an office job for a company of architects, and I was asked to sweep the yards of the leaves that are out there, doing photocopying. And really, just being a general dog's body, and I realised, wow, this this idea of working in an office is not what exactly I felt it would be. But I realised that experience helped me then look at other opportunities. So from that moment, I used that as the platform then to apply for jobs in the city, and I was lucky to get a job for an insurance brokers back in 1986. And I think the person who interviewed really felt sorry for me. I think he had a son a similar age to me, and he thought, right, I'll give this guy a chance. And that really opened my eyes to a completely different world. And I loved it. You know, I loved that whole atmosphere and environment of, you know, working and you're out in the city and socialising. And I met a different array of people, you know, from my background, you're brought up at 16 in a sort of a council type bubble. And then you get exposed to middle class and working class people all from different backgrounds. So it was, a, it was my equivalent to university was going to insurance broking. Something struck me as you were talking, Garen, it was the fact that you said, you know, from a very young age, we wanted to make money. And I mentioned it in the intro, and I don't say it in a gratuitous way. But obviously, there was a, I'm imagining a need to make money. Is that right? Or was it just, you like the idea that with money comes freedom and comes the ability to buy stuff? Where did that come from? So if you think of the environment I've brought up in, your role models are local entrepreneurs, should I say who drive very nice cars, dress very well, and seem to have a lot of money. And I remember thinking, wow, and very superficial, right? You're young and impressionable, right? You have to wear the latest clothes and you want to have the nice cars, etc. And I could see a lot of successful people around me, but they were doing it in a way that's not a route that I would want to go down. So I think that sort of culture, the working class culture of, you know, looking good and feeling good is, is, is one thing. And then my older sister um, from my dad's first marriage, I remember going to visit her in Carl Shorten and she lived in a house. And I think I was 12 or 13. And the first time I remember seeing a house with a garden because we just lived in a council block with lifts and, you know, urine in the stairs, etc. But she lived in a, a lovely house, three bed, a semi-detached house. I was thinking, oh, I'd like this. I'd like the idea of having a house. And so from that moment, I think it was, right, what does it mean to get a house? How do you get a house? And so when I was 20, 21, uh, I remember buying my first property, you know, because I like the idea of having that sort of freedom as well and not being in that sort of council environment. Now, my upbringing was amazing, but I didn't know any different until I experienced that with my sister. So it was always wanting more and seeing other people achieve and thinking, why can't I do that? So that desire really was always in me. I want to do better and I want to achieve more. The money just gives you choices, right? And at the time, it was always about the money, right? I've got to make money. And as you get older, your money is important, but then other things become higher in your priority. When you joined S3, the recruitment business, back in 1990, you went in there as an employee. And a few years later, they gave you the space to set up your mm. own shop within it. How did you manage to pull that off? So, yeah, so... So before I joined S3, I was an estate agent for, um, I joined in 1988, just as the market crashed. And when I joined the estate agency, everyone was leaving. But I didn't know any difference. So I'd moved from insurance broking where it wasn't a meritocratic environment. And I thought, right, I'm going to go into sales. So I joined Winkworths in Catford. And I started as a, as a junior. 
And within a year, I was managing the office and I was doing really well and pretty successful. And I heard about this recruitment business, IT recruitment. I didn't even know what IT meant back then. And I managed to get a job within S3 and I had about... 15, 16 different interviews. It was hard to get in. And I remember they're saying to me, well, you're not very well educated, are you? And I'm then, well, I've got five, five O levels. You know, I've done pretty well in my school. What do you mean I'm not educated? And generally the typical person they'll take on is a grad. And I remember going into that environment thinking, okay, I'm the top of my game when I left the state agency, managing a couple of offices. And I joined this as a trainee again. So I had to start at the bottom. And then I realized, whoa, they are a lot smarter than, than the environment I've been in before. They do work hard. How am I going to shine in an environment like this? And in the first two or three months, I struggled. I was thinking, what am I doing here? And luckily, a few people put their arm around me and said, look, you can do this. And then it took me a year for the penny to drop to realize that, okay, how am I going to beat people that are smarter than me, more articulate than me? How am I going to beat them? And I realized I've got to work harder than they do. So if they were doing 10 hours a day, I would be doing 16 hours a day. If they were sending five CVs out per day, I was sending 20 CVs out. So I worked out very early to play the numbers game. So I think I worked harder than everyone else. Luckily, I had a lot of common sense. So I worked, I could read people very well from my upbringing. You know, if you're brought up um, in the environment you are, you have to read situations pretty well. So I could judge people pretty well. When someone says, yes, they're going to take a job, does that really mean yes? And you, sometimes it's difficult to train people to, to understand someone's buying signals. So I had good common sense. I worked really hard. And through that, I became the top salesperson for a period. I became the top manager. And the founders who were very entrepreneurial and, you know, created a really great environment, backed me to start my own brand, which was, which was an amazing achievement. I did that within five years. And it, I think in my business world, it was one of my proudest moments. A brave new world that has such things and such people in it. I think Aldous Huxley will come to why you, you named it Huxley in a moment. Much more from my guest Gary Olden coming up in a couple of minutes and lots more common sense and some really good words of advice about work harder. And I do remember actually a cabbie said to me, well, the reason I do better than my mates is because I work longer hours. And it's stu that stuck with me too. Right now, they're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dres Alexander Rhodes explores how businesses are responding to COVID-19 and the importance that social value will play in success in the post-crisis world. The Mishcon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. The frameworks around environmental governance and the frameworks around social governance are developing. In the most fundamental way, having a, a business that doesn't pollute, having a, a business that doesn't abuse and, and having a business that isn't exploitative have been around forever. But taken together... In the world that we live in today, I think that businesses are in the transition of bringing these risks, which are endogenous risks to the business, i.e. they are things that are within the control of the business, into the heart of the boardroom and thinking about actually how do these reflect our values? How do these reflect our purpose? And, and how do we then engage in them? First of all, to de-risk our business against regulations that are currently here and regulatory development which is coming apace towards us 
But secondly, and I think in a, in, a, in a fundamental way, more importantly than a pure compliance-led approach, what does this mean about who we are? What does this mean to our customers and our staff? And what does this mean about our business? The Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and hear this very program again with Gary by popping Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, you can ask it to play Jazz Shapers and they will find many of our recent shows. But back to today, Gary Eldon, chairperson of both RecBid, a digital recruitment platform, and Amoria Bond, a recruitment consultancy, and also the founder of Huxley, as you were hearing just earlier, a recruitment agency specialising in financial services and engineering and part of the S3 group. So you set this business up, you called it Huxley, I read somewhere because it sounded kind of interesting and sort of, I don't know, posh is the wrong word, but it, 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 there was something about it, wasn't there? And anyone that had heard of Aldous Huxley or the Huxley family would think, <laughs> well, this is obviously a proper business. It did remarkably well, Gary. How did you learn what it took, not just to be recognised for your graft and your intelligence and your, I love the way you said, reading situations, how did you build the team? How have you gone on to actually realise proper value? Because it's one thing making it to the first step of management. It's another thing catapulting yourself. Yeah, I'd love to claim that I came up with the name Huxley, but my colleague, Eleanor Collins at the time, she came up with the name Huxley from Brave New World. And I came up with the word associates. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were called Huxley Associates back then. And you're right. People, we used to ring companies up and they go, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. Yes, yes. And then when I used to turn up saying, look, I'm the founder of Huxley, they were like, really? Um, so, yeah, the name, we wanted to present a name that sounded very old English, I suppose. And the other names in the brand were Computer Futures and Progressive and Pathway. So we wanted to sound like a law firm, maybe, or a consultancy. Yeah. I learned very, very early on that in order to be successful, you need to have great people around you. And I've never been the best in any of the sports that I played, but I was always captain, you know, captain of the basketball team, football team, cricket team at school. So I think I had those leadership qualities, but I also had people that believed in me and um, and trusted me. I think trust is, a, is an important factor, I think. And I created very early on an amazing group of people around me that were better than me in so many aspects. I created that environment of loyalty. We're all in it together. We build it together and we have fun together. And if I look back in those years, we had so much fun. You know, it's an environment where if you do well, you get rewarded. And we did so many incentives. You know, you go to the restaurants that you'd never dream of going, like Michelin star restaurants. You'd have incentives to countries that you've never been to before. So my life in, in recruitment, it exposed me to so many different things. And the founders of S3, Bill Botcher and Simon Arbor, introduced me to that world. And you just pass the baton on, right? You create that environment where when you bring people on from typically working class background, went to university, and it's like an extension of university for them. And you create that loyalty. You give people chances. If they fail, you know, you back them. But if they don't put the effort in, you understand that you're not going to make it here. So we had a, an environment that was very sales orientated. You know, the best survived. And if you can't keep up, you'd end up leaving. But that's what, you know, we had a band of 
I'll say brothers, but be politically correct, a band of people that basically we, we thought we could take on the world and, and that's what we tried to do. And do you think, you, you mentioned you're a captain and I read that as I love all the teams and then as you said, you know, the sort of the natural leader emerged. What do you think is your super skill, your superpower as a leader, if there was just one, you had to pick just one and you walk into that room? Why are they looking at you when you say, well, they're smarter than me, they're better than me and all this other stuff? What is it about you that they go, no, I'll follow you, Gary? Oh, good question. Um, determination. Or I'll say maybe resilience. Resilience. Because there's lots of failings in, in everything that you do. And it's how you handle that. It's hard to put one word to it because I could say trust and visionary. Um, but maybe resilience, right? Because I think they know that when you're with me, that we're going to go through it together. And I'm not going to give up. I'm going to persevere. Life has changed dramatically, hasn't it? When you were growing up, I've read that you talked about the fact that your dad was black, your mum was white, and there was a lot of racism right in your face and some awful stuff. And as you were talking about resilience, I I wondered if some of that resilience came from your lived experience as you were a kid and obviously from a financial point of view and where you grew up, but also from a racial and a social point of view. What about from your point of view as a leader now as you look at the world where there's more more and more push for proper equality around gender and around colour? How important are those things to you? In your role in, as a yeah, I'm, this is something I'm obviously passionate about. Um, you're seeing a lot of racial injustice. I was on a webinar recently about how do you change the boardroom in relation to more diversity, and very little has changed really in the last ten years. There's a lot of data and stats talking about how we need to change, but a lot of it is people just talking a great shot and not actually doing anything. So, um, yeah, I am passionate about it. I'm involved in rolling out what's called a race code with a colleague of mine, Carl George, who came up with this governance of how to make a difference. And I believe we're at this stage now where we need to hold companies and people accountable to create a truly diverse environment. And, and race is just one of the things, right? Obviously, gender and other factors. So, yeah, this is something I've always been passionate about. Um, anyone who will sometimes think, oh, get, here he goes again about it. But, you know, my dad taught me about issues when you're going for a job. You know, always said, it doesn't matter if you're half black. When you go for a job, they're going to look at you and you're going to be seen as non-white. And therefore, you're going to have to be that much hard work, that much harder and be more that more determined. So I think my, my upbringing and my environment has obviously shaped the way I feel about it. I remember Bill, the founder, used to say, you, you're quite chippy, aren't you? And I'm thinking, yeah, I am quite chippy because I don't think a lot of people really see or experience things from a, a black person's perspective. And someone who's of colour and some of my friends who are, who are you know, black, 100% black, and you can see even the racism associated to someone's darkness, if someone's of dark skin. And we used to, you know, when we used to go out, my friend who was, you know, quite dark, he'd go up to the club and... No, you can't come in. It's a members club. I'd go up to the club. They'll ask me a few questions first and then they might let me in. And then a white friend would go up to the club and they let him straight in with asking any questions. So we've ex I've experienced that, not just as, as a youngster growing up where we've got a split in our school and you've got National Front outside, but also as a man, right? You know, as a, as a director or a CEO of a company, I've still experienced that. So yeah, I feel quite passionate about it. And I think... What's happened recently with George Floyd has obviously, you know, brought that to people's attention. But 
I experienced that as a youngster all my time. I used to get stopped. I used to run a Caribbean takeaway many years ago. And every time I left, I used to get stopped by the police. It became a running joke. It's like, really? Are you going to keep stopping me? So I think people don't realize what's going on. And from what I'm, you know, I'm not in that world at the moment, right? Because I'm living in suburbia and I'm not getting stopped. But from speaking to my friends and, and colleagues, right, this still happens. So yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. And it feels like to me, there's been a move from the kid who was 20. And I say this as a, a, I'm almost the same age as you, so not in a patronizing way at all. But, you know, we thought we were old and adult, but we were much younger. The kid who was 20, who wanted the, the BMW to the person now in real positions of authority and a number of them, and you're being asked to come and chair this company and chair that company and uh, the Amoria Bond Company, big company. These are not small little outfits. These are proper significant businesses. The money isn't going to drive you as much. Of course, you've now got the house. You've got, you know, you're, you're comfortable in that way. I imagine now you're able to focus on these issues in a, in a much more deliberate way. Yeah, totally. I think your priorities change, right? We work with a charity at the moment. It's about creating leaders for tomorrow, for example. And the reason, reason why we want leaders for tomorrow, because if you're at the top, you've got a voice, right? You're talking, I'm talking to you now, right? Because of my success. People want me to become advisors or chairman because of what I've achieved. So if I'm in a position of power, you can do things. And I'm now at that stage where your priorities are about your well-being. You know, I, I became a vegan three years ago because I'm worrying about different things. Now, if you spoke to me in my 20s and 30s about being a vegan and the environment and everything else, I'd have said, yeah, whatever. So when you have children, you become wiser, you mature you start to have different priorities. And thankfully, I am financially secure. And now it gives me time to do things that I want to do, not what I have to do. And when you're in a corporate world, and I've been in a corporate world for a while, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I have to play the game. I'm out of the game now, and I can just be myself 100%. And and I I think I love that idea of having that freedom to do that. I'm in a fortunate position, and not many people are. So, you know, that's why you you strive to be successful, so you can do things like that. Stay with me for my final chat with my great guest there, it's Gary Eldon. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Joe Henderson. That's coming up in just a moment here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Gary Eldon is with me just for a few minutes. Gary, we've talked about the fact that you've reached this point in your career where you're obviously now being asked to be an advisor and your chairperson of this interesting business called Rec Beard. You're involved also as a chair of Amoria Bond. You're involved with the Alito Foundation. As you look at these things, do you find your mind is much clearer, much more, it's easier to see what needs to be done because you've got a bit of distance? And if so, what are the one or two things that are generally always there that are issues that need to be fixed or visions that need to be realised? I wish I could say, um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm smirking because... Um, I'm in my office now and I'm actually working on a project about rolling out a blockchain cryptocurrency um, brokerage company. So um, I spent the last 18 months when I stepped down from S3 just, you know, finding yourself, spending time with your kids and basically just doing a lot of things, right? Trying to help out. And then I realized I want to get my teeth into something. So the idea of sitting back and relaxing in the garden hasn't quite happened. My wife just said, look, can you just make yourself busy, please, right? You can, otherwise, you're driving me mad. But I was enjoying picking the kids up from school, watching them play sports. But when you're on lockdown, right, you're in, a, you're in a different situation. So I do keep myself busy, to be honest. I'm building a recruitment platform, a training platform, a company, Vidmology. So it's to help everyone in the recruitment industry gain access to training. 
I'm building a marketing platform at the moment with my business partner. And as I said, I'm involved in some cryptocurrency, blockchain-based technology as well. So um, I'm still keeping myself busy, but I'm not, it's not a full-time job. And is it a different stress? I mean, do you find, are you able to think more clearly with all the experience that you've got? And are you able to be a bit more relaxed because, and maybe this is wrong, but the financial imperative is less powerful? Yeah, but it's, it's not about the money anymore, right? It's about proving to yourself that you can do other things. You know, you've, you've spent 30 years in an environment where you've been really successful and are you a one-trick pony, right? That's sometimes you ask yourself, are you a one-trick pony? And maybe I am, who knows? I have to be stimulated. And I think I'm in a stage in my journey where I've, you're right, it's not about the money. It's more about pushing yourself and achieving. And I still wake up four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning and thinking of ideas. I still wake up going, right, what can we do? I still sometimes put those hours in, but it's because I want to now, right? Not because I have to. And that's different. And it's a different type of stress. But um, I think you always want to push yourself to succeed. And I think the next phase of my journey for the next 10 years is to push myself into something that I want to do, not because I have to do it. And that's the difference. That's what I love more. Enjoy the next 10 years. Enjoy the next 20. Enjoy the rest of your life, Garrett. It's been lovely talking Thank to you. you. Um, and I hope you achieve all those things. I'm sure you're not a one-trick pony. But if you are, <laughs> it, was a pretty good, it was a pretty good trick. So who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Just before I let you go, um, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? It's Everybody Loves the Sunshine by Roy Ayers. And the reason why I chose this song is when I was 17, we had this um, youth leader that looked after kids from certain backgrounds, our, our backgrounds, and took us to an island called Spetsy in Greece for three weeks, right? There was 20 of us in Greece, let loose. And um, every evening we'd come back to the, the, the villa we were staying in and he would be playing us Roy Ayers. And I'd go, who's Roy Ayers? And he'd play the Roy Ayers album live. Um, he'd play um, Everybody Loves the Sunshine, um, Pupulala, and et cetera, et cetera. Pupulala, yeah, yeah. And it just, from that moment, it, those memories were great. And so Roy Ayers, is, that's when I got introduced to Roy Ayers when I was 17. And then when I met my wife, my second wife, I should say, when the sun was out, we would be in the car, the roof down, and we'd always be playing Everybody Loves the Sunshine. That was Roy Ayers with Everybody Loves the Sunshine, the song choice of my business shaper today, Gary Eldon. He said the money gives you choices. That's why he was so focused on making it based on where he had been brought up. I realised I had to work harder, he said, of how he has done so well. Very simple mantra. He's brilliant at reading situations, such an important skill for anybody in business in regard to the way that people are behaving. And finally, as he looks towards the next 10 years of his life and what he's going to be doing, he's asking himself the question which many successful people do, is he a one-trick pony? I'm sure he's not. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.